Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live. I'm your host, Tony Duty, and I'm pleased to be joining you from my new professional home at University of Delaware. We broadcast on the High Red Live Network, and you can tune in to Student Affairs Live Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our guests, but we can't do that without giving a first a shout out to the sponsors that make Student Affairs Live possible. Hired Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Broadcast is sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators International. Support for Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways ACPA provides innovative professional development. Visit myacpa.org to discover additional personal and professional development opportunities. I want to take a moment to thank Carrie Locke, who's helping me to monitor the back channel and forwarding to me your best content and questions from the Twitterverse. Let's move into our content today, and, and I'd like to ask our, our three guests to start off by describing your current role and spend a few minutes describing your late night efforts and how they may have evolved over time. Cara, let's start off with you. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Cara White, and I am the Assistant Director for student involvement uh, for the University Student Centers at the University of Delaware. And our late night program um, is fairly young. We've been around um, a little less than five years. And uh, there was a need for um, some alternative programs on our campus and to provide something for our students to do on the weekend. Um, and so we came up with our late night programming series, which takes place on Fridays and Saturdays. On um, Fridays, our events are free and they take place in one of our buildings called Perkins Student Center. And that program is called Perkins Live. It's from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. each week in our department um, plans and programs that event. And then every Saturday, we partner with student organizations um, and they host events in our multi-purpose room and our other student center called the Trabant University Center. And that event is called Trabant Now. Those um, programs vary um, in cost. So sometimes they're free, sometimes they aren't. But throughout the years, um, the years, the program has evolved. Um, you know, on our first year, we were very hands-on with what we did with the student organizations, um, very intentional about the students we recruited to serve on our um, crew, and um, did a lot of heavy, heavily um, marketed um, marketing strategies to kind of get people's buy-in. And now the program has just kind of grown and it kind of sustains itself. And so we don't um, have to do some of those extreme marketing things, and uh, we can be a little more hands-off with the students but it's definitely something that um, they've enjoyed and it's continuing to grow. Fantastic, thank you. All right, Lauren, you're up next. Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Kuski. I currently work at Rowan University as the Assistant Director for Student Center and Campus Activities, overseeing our Rowan After Hours or RA program. Um, currently, our RA program has just celebrated 10 years in existence, which is absolutely awesome. It was a handful trying to put together that 10-year celebration. Um, it came out of a need uh, at Rowan, actually when I was an undergraduate student here, um, when we had an unfortunate death on campus and we needed something, we, we took a look at the programs happening on campus and noticed there really was nothing happening um, during the nights or on weekends. So Ra, um, so that came out about 10 years ago. Uh, Ra takes place every Friday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. in our student center. We periodically shift the times um, for special events like our Saturday Night Lights event, um, which helps just support our um, Rowan Athletics football team. So we, we switch that time and our location in order to support them during family weekend. Um, but Typically, that's when our program happens. I've been fortunate enough to work with um, a few late night programs over the years and fortunate to see um, Ra as a student uh, when it had first started to now overseeing the program, which I swore I would never do, and here I am. <laughs> um, so that has been something really interesting to see because I think back in the day, we were very focused on the events and getting as many people through the door as possible and making sure everyone walked away with a free item and free food and free everything. Um, now, I think there has been a shift, at least in my mentality over the past two late night programs I've overseen, um, which is focusing on that student leadership aspect and making sure our students who are running the programs um, feel as though they're engaging with the students, that they're getting something out of the experience besides just working an event. Um, we also, I think, have focused a lot more on the quality of our events. So I'm willing to have um, more nights that have maybe less attendance in order to have that higher quality um, 
program that's coming out or trying something a little bit new and innovative, which I think 10 years ago would have been a miss, um, at least at our campus. Great, thank you. All right, Kayla, you're up next. Hey, hello everyone. My name is Kayla Masterly and I'm the program coordinator at Indiana University. And I oversee all of the late night programs here on campus pretty much. Um, so the easiest way of describing kind of the convoluted late night process here at IU is there's like a three tier system. So um, the lowest tier is our IMU late night, which takes place in the Indiana Memorial Union, which is our student union building on campus. Um, and that takes place every Friday night, um, every single week from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Um, and it's run by a, it was originally run by a small but mighty team of five student employees who worked every single Friday, um, two of which helped plan the, um, the every events, and they were called uh, program assistants. And we had three operations assistants who were more like uh, day of event staff who came and just made sure the program was successful and kept moving. Then our second tier of late night is our uh, union board committee. So we, union board is the largest programming um, body on IU's campus and there is a late night director and he has a committee that he oversees as well and so we usually partner with them to do what's called a big Friday once a month. Usually there's a big theme to it and we get um, that additional funding from student fee money to help make that an exceptionally big program. And then there's a final tier of late night, which is a campus-wide initiative that came, um, that was a push from the university as a whole to put an emphasis on late night programs. And so that committee was formed by our housing department, um, our OASIS department, which is a, a group on campus that monitors like risk, um, risk management and alcohol usage on campus and things like that, as well as the IMU. And so the IMU henceforth created that first tier, um, which does the programming every single Friday. But through that uh, large campus committee, there's also been spaces that have been developed on campus, like um, what we call the Hoosier Den, which is located inside some of our residence halls that has a specific um, focus on doing late night programs. So that's, it's a lot of different areas, um, but the way that it's evolved over the years since I've been here is I've become the chair of that late night committee, the campus-wide one, and we've split it into more of a funding board versus a programming board. When I started, there wasn't a lot of direction for where that programming board was, for the, where that committee was going, because um, it was mostly staff who were just like really passionate about late night and wanted to make sure that stuff was happening, but didn't really want to be here at 1 a.m., um, which you can't really blame them. Um, and so it started, so that's kind of where we've evolved since I've kind of become the chair. And then that first tier, that IMU late night, has doubled in staff. So I now supervise 10 student employees um, who help make late night happen. And I have two interns, as well as a graduate assistant who help me with late night now. Wow, thank you all for giving given, uh, those details and context. That, you know, as people look to evolve or create their own late night programs, I, I think the differences in, in how you strategically have set them up uh, will help people. Now, Cara, can you provide some concrete strategies to ensure that programs are appealing to diverse and distinct populations? Sure. Um, I think in general, um, when considering how you're programming for any demographic, is um, offering a variety of programs and opportunities. So here at the University of Delaware, um, our school is a predominantly white institution. Um, we have a high percentage of women. And a lot of our students come from affluent families. And so we try to provide diverse opportunities through the program and offerings that we have so that we're not just appealing to that one demographic. Um, so we strategically partner with different um, departments on campus. We um, partner with some of our culturally based organizations for our Saturday night um, series. And uh, we kind of work intentionally to, to work with people to get that exposure out to them so that those that are attending um, our programs can, um, you know, really experience and interact with things that may be different from what they're used to. Um, and our Friday night series in particular, when we are vetting the type of programs we're doing, we try not, not to just stick to like one certain format where we know comedians do really well. We do 10 weeks worth of programs, but we don't want to do 10 comedians each week. And so some of our um, program offerings have seated shows. Some of them are more interactive and engaging. And so we'll have a laser tag night or a paint night. You know, we just want to offer a variety of things so that everyone feels like there is something for them. And I think what really helps us with that is reaching out to the students, working with our student crew, um, you know, 
going off the feedback we get from assessment to kind of see what the needs are on the campus, what, what the students have interest in and making sure that we're incorporating that in the programming efforts that we're doing. So it, it, it's often difficult or a challenge to get some of our more introverted students to participate in the programs. Anyone have any recommendations on how we can get them out for programs? You're all smiling. <laughs> Um, I'll jump in if that's okay. Um, something that I stress, and I think this comes with that student uh, leadership, student development aspect with our student workers. So seeing them beyond just a, a staff member, but a leader on campus um, is with our events. Um, and I think we probably see this across the board with late night events. They are aimed towards our freshmen and sophomore students, or at least those are the students who most likely attend our um, a majority of our events. Um, we really train our student staff members to be willing to go up to people, notice students who are not engaged or they're by themselves. Um, one of my favorite stories of all time is when I was at uh, SUNY Geneseo in Rochester and I was overseeing their Geneseo late night program or GLK. Um, and there was a student, and I had stressed this with my staff like a ton, and there was a student who was by herself, she was by a photo booth, and she kept looking like she wanted to go to the photo booth and then walked away and then went up. So one of my students went up to her and said, hey, like, my name is Lauren, what's going on? Are, are you interested in taking a picture? And just engaged, found out she was a transfer student in the, in the spring semester, um, and she really wanted a picture, but she didn't have anyone to take a picture with. So my staff, um, left their positions, which I told them in instances like this is okay as long as you can manage it, left their positions, took a quick group shot with her. So she had this picture and she ended up with like a photo keychain. Um, what was funny was two years later, she came up to me at graduation as still having that photo keychain. And she said that night I met some of my best friends that I still talk to. Um, I hold this because I know there are good people out there and that I'm hoping to do the same for someone else. So it, it, once they're around, it, it's easy for our staff hopefully to identify and get out of their comfort zones. And I think because they're wearing a staff shirt, it makes it a lot easier. Um, other things we do is when we table and market, we purposefully go up to people and say, hey, we think we might have an event or a spot for you here. Why don't you come join us? Um, and the best part about all of it, I think, is our students. I have about 25 staff members um, for our events. Uh, they get noticed around campus. So people start coming up to them and saying, hey, you work for Ra. Can you tell me what's happening? Um, so even them being identified outside of the workspace is very helpful. Great. I would um, second what uh, Lauren said regarding, you know, training your staff to be engaging with the students who are attending the event. And so one of the things that we do with Perkins Live is we have students that are identified as energizers and they're there on the night. They float around with these tables with games and they'll go up to the line like, hey, play, let's play Connect Four. And, you know, they just kind of like really interact and offer that like warm, welcoming experience so that the students kind of feel like, oh, this is a place for me to be. This is something that's going to be cool. And, we, you know, our students really buy into it. We find those. Think about orientation day, the students that are like dancing on the side of the corners. Those are the type of people we use for our energizers just to kind of get people excited about the program that we have going on. I like that. I'm going to steal that. I would say something that my students do when they when they plan um, IMU late night, um, they always try and incorporate some activities that are more introvert um, adjacent or relatable. So we, we always have crafts, which like I'm not a huge crafty person. And so one day I tried to one for one night, we tried to take crafts away. And all of I got so much feedback on Facebook the next day saying, why did you take our crafts? So I know better to from to not take it away now, but um, it's uh, that's the the feedback that I get about like including cr uh, a craft every single week is that a lot of the introverted students who come to our late night um, really enjoy that being able to sit down and like get to know people in kind of a smaller group setting, and then that's how they actually get to know people. Um, it's also been a way for our international students to really get to know domestic students by being able to sit down and occupy a space. Um, with other students for a long time while they're like sewing a monster puppet or something like that. Um, so that's something that we try and be mindful of. We also include movies and other kind of um, like more chill and relaxed um, activities because I know the extroverts are going to jump up and do karaoke and sing their hearts out, but we definitely try and keep everyone in mind. I love it. So, so Lauren, not everyone has these large budgets that, that are allocated for some of these late night programs. What are some ideas you've come across or seen low-cost programs? Absolutely. Um, I think this is an interesting question as well for me. I, 
my last institution at GLK, I had a budget that was around $100,000, which is still a quite extensive budget for a late night program. Um, and at Rowan, we're very fortunate that we had a referendum passed 10 years ago. So I get a, a designated amount of student fees, which add up to almost a million dollars for programming, staffing, uh, facilities management, the whole nine. So it doesn't go straight to programming, but I, I would say we have a decent amount. Um, so to jump from that $100,000 where I had to pinch every penny when we were hosting 70 events a year um, to going to this extensive budget that there are days that I'm like, I can't even wrap my head around what this physically looks like. Um, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. So something that I've noticed and things that I would really do is uh, on my team, we have uh, committees. So we have student coordinators who help lead those committees. They're um, elevated positions. They have to apply for them. Um, they run the committee as well as help us run the evening events. So one of those committees is our programming committee. So they do homegrown programs. Um, everything that they do has to be done pretty much in-house. So it's photo booths. It's uh, for some reason here, which I just can't comprehend, bingo is a huge thing. Um, so we will have 400 people show up to bingo one night. Um, and it just boggles my mind because I did that in other institutions and like three people show up. Um, but bingo, casino nights, um, things like that, things that we can easily do in-house, um, decorations. A lot of those things um, I find interesting because our students have some really good ideas. They're able to run with a concept or a theme and just make it happen. Um, so a few of those that, that we've seen that work really well is in-house Jeopardy, in-house Family Feud. Um, it takes some time on the back end to develop, but if you're smart about it, and that's something that I stress with my staff is write everything down, all the questions, how you developed it, save as much as we can, because even if we have to recreate or redo some of the questions, we have a structure in place so we don't have to create everything from scratch every single semester. Um, some other creative ideas uh, that we do is we do have um, a pot uh, that we kind of have at the front of our desk um, a few nights uh, a week where people can write in their comments, their suggestions, um, and some of it's insane. Uh, you would be surprised the things that some students write down. Um, but some things, uh, for instance, we had one night where they said, in instead of a ball pit, we want a puppy pit. So just puppies all around and we want that. And I'm like, I don't think that's ethical or that can happen. But you know what, we can bring service animals in that you can play with and that you could relax with and maybe we'll show um, a movie or we'll just have some food um, around, something similar to that. Um, and I've seen that work very effectively. A puppy pit. I know, I mean, I'm all for it. <laughs> I don't know how many people will give me their puppies, but I'll take so, them all. So I'm, I'm curious about that referendum. Was that driven by the institutional institution looking to solve an issue or did the students uh, push, push through that initiative? It's a mix of both. So like I said in the beginning, when Ra was created about 10 years ago, um, there was a concern after um, a student had passed away on campus. Um, very tragically saying, what is there for students to do besides just going out? Um, so we were looking at what, what, what programs do clubs offer, what events are happening in the halls, and we learned that nothing was happening most nights of the week, especially Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. So we looked at that and the student government had said, well, there needs to be something because the student passed away and it was it was really hard on our community. How do we fix this for the future? Um, so it was it was brought between our student government, our VP for student uh, affairs or student life, um, as well as the, at the time our assistant director of um, campus activities. And that all came together with a trial um, in the spring semester of 2008 um, and said, okay, we'll host an event one night a week, see what students think. And we did it for a full semester with very little funding. So that's where we got a lot of those homegrown programs of um, uh, bingos and um, win it in a minute and Jeopardy, things like that. And we had a few novelty nights as well. Um, after that semester, there was a referendum at the end that all students had the opportunity to vote on and it was unanimous, unanimously decided to vote on it. So we do get, um, I believe it's 3750 um, from each student per credit hour, um, up to 10 credit hours, I think it is, I could be wrong on that number. Um, 
that they give to us um, and that has students love it. And one of the things that, that we've been able to do with that is to demonstrate that most of our events are under $10 a person um, per night. So if you were to come into our events, you're paying less than what you would um, going somewhere else to get a stuff a plush or something like that. So, and again, this question for anyone, the, the impetus for that, for that initiative, it makes me wonder, how, how do you decide what audience to focus on, drinkers versus non-drinkers, or does that even matter? I'll, I'll jump in. I have strong opinions. Um, I am of the mindset that I, I try to be careful because although um, our events happen Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, I don't consider them alternative um, because the, the reality is, is any program that doesn't serve alcohol is then alternative in my opinion. So we're just an option um, to attend. Um, it is not uncommon for me to see a lot of students who are intoxicated or about to be intoxicated walking out the door. Um, in my opinion, come one, come all, as long as you're not gonna vomit on my bouncy house, then we're all good. That's the only time I kind of kick people out and I'm like, you're a tad too much. Um, but we'll embrace anyone, sober, um, not sober. And you do see an interesting mix of the two, especially we, we're fortunate that we have a midnight food bar come out almost every night. Um, so we see a lot of students who are coming back from parties or heading out who stop by our midnight food bar. Um, the other aspect I, I see a lot of is, I think we, we try our, our best to focus on on-campus population, which also happens to be primarily our freshman and sophomore population here. We're still trying to figure out how do we get that older audience, those junior, seniors, um, because our freshmen, sophomores are repeat. They come back night after night, week after week. Um, but something seems to happen around junior, senior year where they say Ra is no longer cool. So how do we address that? Um, and we've done a few things by hosting some larger events. We were fortunate this past weekend to host Michael Che and had a large um, event that we co-sponsored with our student university programmer, uh, programming board. Uh, so we try to look for outlets like that. But that's kind of where I stand on that. And um, oh, sorry, Sunny. Um, I'm of the same mindset. When we first started um, our programming initiatives, it was this big talk about alternative programming. And now we've moved to this place that is no longer the alternative. It's like the first choice. This is what students want to do. Mm -hmm. so we have the buy-in from the students. And um, as Lauren said, we know that there are going to be students who may come to our events um, either on their way or um, passing through to go to a party to drink or what what may have you but we look at it as at that moment they are engaged with us and they are not out doing those behaviors and so um, that can be considered like a win even if it's for a brief time like um, we are either delaying the process or you know there may be something that keeps them there for the whole night and so we're, we try to get out that mindset of using alternative too because we want it to be um, something that they it's their first option that mm -hmm. they're interested in going to. And goodness knows if a student even smells the hint of it being an alternative program, they will not show up. Um, so that's also an interesting aspect to it. And that's something that I know here at IU, we're, we're fighting that a little bit, that, that mindset that this is, that late night is what you go to when you're a freshman and you can't go out to the bars yet. Mm -hmm. um, so that is something that we're working on right now. But one of the one of the cool things that I've, I've noticed with our late night programs is the students who come back um, week after week are the ones who like need late night the most, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. They're the ones who are looking for something to do. They might not be part of that party culture. And right. so I see these repeat faces that come back and all, all the time. And it just kind of warms my heart that I get to know names and faces on a campus as huge as this. So Kayla, oftentimes people who aren't familiar with our work can, can judge success, and I think someone alluded to this earlier, based only on attendance numbers. So while that's certainly an indicator of success, what else beyond the numbers should we be measuring? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that this is something that pretty much every student activities professional probably deals with a little bit because the higher ups are looking at those numbers and seeing if it's worth continuously giving money towards. Um, and so something that we've really started doing is um, tracking demographic data as well. Um, but we use like these cool little scanners, um, so that people could see it, but we use these uh, scanners at every single night, which actually tracks demographic data. 
so that we can see like what populations we are serving. And we, we've done some studies to see who is actually coming to our events. And we have a very large international student population that comes every single Friday. Um, and that was something that was kind of a surprise to not only myself, but also to a lot of other people on campus um, who were just like, oh, wow, like this is this is something that we weren't like this is a, a group of students we weren't expecting to enjoy late night as much as they do. So that's something that we really try and focus on. Um, and that also kind of helps um, like, like legitimize what we're doing as far as like like why we should continue to get more funding. Um, but another thing that we really try and focus on and that I try and like really hit home to my students is that we're trying to make memories. Um, and so like last Friday, we had a couple of students who I've seen come back to every single late night, but they've been kind of those shyer introverted students who have been enjoying the crafts, but haven't really like ventured beyond that, um, who jumped up on the karaoke stage um, and sang a rendition of Gaston from Beauty and the Beast and like performed it. Um, and had the entire room paying attention to them um, and cheering along. And it was like, it was one of those moments that I think those students are really gonna remember. And a lot of, a lot of other students were like taking videos and sit and putting it on their social media. And so we're really trying to help make those memories and build those moments that students are gonna remember as well. And I think that shouldn't be forgotten in the long term of like why we do what we do. Um, so that brings students back to our late night events week after week. You know, the fusion of the puppies in a ball pit um, <laughs> made me think maybe craft karaoke, craft improv, I don't know, <laughs> those two together. So, so Cara, can, can you talk about, I, I know that one of, one of the late night activities here at University of Delaware is really about partnering with others. So can you provide some examples on, on how you facilitate and encourage collaboration with community partners? Yes, so um, our Saturday program is all um, a collaborative effort because we partner with departments and student organizations. Um, I think when it comes to our Friday night program, we look for ways to also partner, even though it's not a direct um, like a element of the, the program um, structure. And so um, if there's like a need that we're looking to um, hit for either our department or another department, we try to work together to see how we can support that. And so our Friday night program series, even though it's mainly planned through our department, there have been um, instances where we partner with different um, departments on campus. And so Residence Life and Housing, they do this really big initiative every year um, around service. And um, this big program is like day of service. And so once we started the uh, late night series, we started doing a night of service with um, Residence Life and Housing. And they bring all their RAs out with their um, floors. It's always one of our highest attended events and the students get to engage in service activities while also engaging in the programs that we have for them. And um, we started this tradition now where we do this every year and there's a paint night and people, um, the students can choose to donate the paints, the paintings that they do to local nursing homes or they can make um, different service um, um, uh, bags and things for surrounding communities. Uh, we've also partnered with the um, International Students and Scholars Office um, so that the international students can connect with the domestic students and kind of learn about um, kind of the experiences that the domestic students have. So a couple of years ago, we did a carnival to carnival event where um, the night had like a carnival theme and then there was a carnival theme that was more of a dressy prom type experience. And then our international students were able to come out and engage in that regard. But our Saturday night um, series, those are all collaborative efforts. Those are um, events that are hosted by student clubs and organizations or departments. And we support them by giving them additional funding, helping them with their marketing. And um, there's one that we do every year with the department. It's our student wellness and health promotion. They do a Halloween party um, prior to our late night program, program and initiative. They've always done this program. And so after the inception of our program series, we didn't want to then pull away from what they were doing or take away from their audience or over plan. And so we just decided to make it a tradition. So we always know every year, one of our Trabot nows will be the Halloween party with student wellness and health promotion. And we're able to meet that need that they had and kind of work together to support them in those efforts as well. So, so Kayla, you know, we're talking about lots of, of fun and entertainment like activities. And, and I think generally student activities gets criticize 
by those who see the work we do is unrelated to the academic mission. So how do we as professionals best respond to that criticism and how can we demonstrate learning outcomes through what we do? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I would say like at least in regards to late night specifically at IU, um, one, one of the things that we're fortunate to have experience with is since this was an initiative that was created across campus by housing and um, Oasis, as well as um, the Indiana Memorial Union. Um, like this was an initiative that was backed by the university itself, as well as like the provost and a bunch of other higher up figures to really battle that um, prominent drinking culture across campus. And so I know we don't have to worry as much about criticism as much as competition. Um, I would say that there are different areas on campus that have been highlighted more by like our provost, for example, who has a strong affiliation connection with arts and humanities. And so a lot of funding is directed towards um, like our arts and humanities council who gets to put on these really amazing big events. Um, and so they kind of have received a little bit more priority. And so we oftentimes are more competing with other programming bodies on campus rather than dealing with criticism of what we should be doing. Um, but I will say that another thing that like I know we experience with Union Board is there's that there, we get constant feedback of bringing bigger and better names um, to campus um, because and just to tie into those learning outcomes of you know who's going to come see this lecture or this speaker if the students don't know who they are, even if they have an amazing if something amazing to say. Um, and so that is one area with our programming board that uh, that experiences a lot of stress. <laughs> I would say just trying to um, find ways to balance those learning outcomes, but also get students to go to the events. I think something I can also um, pitch in here, uh, uh, the best advice someone ever told me um, when working in this part of the field in student affairs is prove why you exist constantly. Um, and I, I think that has stuck with me a lot. So I'm constantly pulling not only the divisional learning outcomes, but also um, the campus learning outcomes, comparing against CAS standards. Um, even with our training, I usually have a training manual and um, the students may not understand exactly what's going on, but every training, whether it's a team builder or a lecture I'm giving or a video I'm showing relates to a university learning outcome, a student learning outcome or a CAS standard. And I think that that has been important for me over the past several years. And I've grown to really appreciate what that means. Um, at Rowan, we're going through a huge assessment um, rollover uh, with the different programs we're using. So hopefully that'll actually become easier for us. But the other thing that I always throw out there too is our late night programs provide things that a lot of other areas cannot provide. We're providing access to events that a lot of our students may not have the financial ability to, to have access to. Um, we're, we're providing, um, we have a, a large population of food insecure students on campus, which has led us to have um, what's called the shop on campus where donated food items are in a, a location on campus that students can just go, no questions asked, pick up a food item and walk out the door. So providing um, our midnight food bar each night provides for those students. And we have seen students night after night who come and maybe they just come for our food bar. Um, and that's in part, potentially because they're food insecure. So um, providing access to a, a variety of different events um, and, and exposure to things that a lot of our students don't see. We are a primarily white um, middle-class institution. So providing exposure to different cultures, allowing student organizations to come in and host events and, and, and offer us speakers or performers that that maybe, yeah, you can travel into Philly or New York City for, because we, we are located in a, in a good area, but um, the cost of buying that ticket or the, the avenue to just walk through the, your student center and see it and stop by for 10 minutes, to me is very valuable. Yeah, I, th I think we often get dis discounted and, and people don't recognize the contributions toward community, toward wellness, toward social engagement, toward the pride and tradition of the university. Like, that kind of work, um, we are also we are also a community, and in any community, you would you would hope to have these kind of opportunities for for people to engage with with each other. So, next question, Lauren, back to you. Be, beyond flyers, Facebook, and Twitter, how do you reach the students? What are some of the creative ways you've seen people promote 
uh, these kind of programs and increase the engagement? Um, absolutely. I think we're, we're noticing a lot of disengagement on Facebook and Twitter. Unfortunately, from our incoming student population, I think flyers are becoming um, less and less valuable the way they once were. So we've had to get a little creative here and um, at other institutions as well. I think um, calendar of events I've seen um, have worked really well um, because students, um, something we do here, which is I, I absolutely love all first year students, including transfer students, get a welcome bag in their room when they move on campus. Um, and it has a calendar of events, it has a water bottle. Um, a few departments go in on this on this bag um, and we put it all together. So they have a bag, a welcome bag when they come to campus their first day, um, which has some of our major marketing um, strategies in there. Um, we also have something called ProfLink, which is run by Campus Labs, um, that we're starting to see an increase in um, uh, usage of that. And we're uh, because we have card swipes, it all links back to ProfLink uh, for us, which has been uh, a wonderful resource. And we're seeing it grow more and more with classes utilizing ProfLink and, and, and whatnot. Um, I think we also do, um, we have a space in our student center um, and we call them vendor tables. They're not really vendor tables, but um, we put free coffee out in the morning um, uh, once or twice a month. We give out free coffee and let people know about our upcoming events. A lot of what we're seeing is that word of mouth. Um, anytime you can you can pro give people a free t-shirt to wear, I think that's also um, very valuable because um, we don't have enough t-shirts. I only have three drawers full of college t-shirts over the past several years. Um, the last thing that is kind of funny um, that I've seen done and has come with mixed reviews is we do happen to have a golf cart for our department. Um, and in the past, um, we have utilized the golf cart um, by riding around and blaring sirens and announcing what we're doing, um, some of which has not come um, to be loved by our departments um, or other offices on campus. I think we once got a call from the Dean of Students saying, why is your student um, yelling outside my window right now? Um, we're like, we don't know who that is. Uh, but it, anytime it's word of mouth or something creative, something that pops, um, someone on our campus actually, um, someone in our department got one of those flailing things. Um, so we put that out anytime we have an event as well, um, which at least attracts some attention and quite honestly, uh, a lot cheaper than you would think it would be, so. Can you demonstrate the flailing I mean, thing I again? feel like this was a good <laughs> demonstration right there. Um, so, sorry, I was gonna add so to that. <laughs> um, I think um, in addition to that, I think you hit the nail on the head with as far as being creative in your approach and mm -hmm. you know, not just relying on flyers and, um, I know one of the things that we did um, when we first started was a lot of guerrilla marketing around the, the programs that we did. And so the space where we normally have our free food for our Friday night events, we would use that space to kind of advertise what to anticipate for the week. And so like a murder mystery, we did footsteps and clues and caution tape yeah. and the caution tape had our logo with the date like come back and check us out to see who done it and things like that. We um, have like the chattering teeth that you can like wind up that they um, kind of move. We would put tags with the event information for the comedy series and put them in the um, food court tables and around. So we try to think of like things that like will make people say, oh, what's this about? And then kind of make them um, get excited about the event. But that other part about increasing engagement, I think what has really helped us with um, increasing our engagement and having people want to buy back, come back and get that buy-in is our um, VIP program that we have with our students. So the more events that you attend, the more incentives you get. And so after the first five events, you can get um, a fast pass, which allows you to cut in front of the novelty line, kind of like at an amusement park. And then after you swipe into eight events, you can get like some exclusive swag, whether we've done blankets, we've done water bottles, we've done um, t-shirts. Um, so there's just a variety of things. And if you want to really go above and beyond and do all 14 or do up to 14, or a minimum of 14, then you get something super exclusive. Um, I think a couple of years ago, we did like some really nice jackets. We've done backpacks. And so um, students love free stuff and like they come in they're, they're like, did you get my swipe for last week? I was here last week and they really get excited about it. And then our first 10 students that come each week, they get to sit in the front row of um, the, whatever the performance is. And those chairs are like nicer, like um, couches and things like that. So those sort of things, 
yes, so some of it is you know, like there's a cost associated with it, but like the couches, you know, those are all like kind of low key things that students kind of get excited about and kind of want to come back for to see if they're going to be the first ones in line and things like things like that. Love it, Kelly. You got anything to add on your marketing in your marketing belt? I mean, outside of doing really cool things in the union, I have something that we've really noticed that's been very successful across campus is chalking. Um, students are absolute students absolutely love chalking across our campuses, um, and uh, it's. And we've noticed that the vaguer, the better. Um, we had one event where it was kind of like a murder mystery, and it, and the the question was just like, who is John? And we had, and then with our hashtag below it, um, and we had so many people hashtag like tweeting us saying like, you know, who is John? And so, and we would just respond with, be here at this time to find out. Um, and so that's been one of the more successful campaigns that we've done. Um, but yeah, like being as creative as possible. I love the chattering teeth idea. Like that's amazing. <laughs> so Cara, next question to you. What are some of the elements that separate what might be an average programming experience from a really unforgettable wildlife experience? Um, I think the one major element of something that um, determines whether it's average or unforgettable is an event that elicits some type of emotion. Like Kayla spoke earlier to how they're all about making memories. And I think if you, you know, have an event that's good, you have a good time, like, yes, the student can be there and then enjoy it. But if there's something that's pulling at some type of emotion, whether it's happiness or nostalgia, something that's gonna give them a connection that sticks with them, I think that really makes it unforgettable. I think about our throwback series when we do throwback nights and students are like, you know, they get in the feels because they're like, oh, I remember watching Nickelodeon when I grew up. I remember and it has a connection and it's like something that sticks with them forever. Or on our opening weekend when we do our headphone disco, like that's like the culminating event for all of our first year students that come together and they're dancing on this, this, uh, the green and they're super excited, but a little hesitant in the beginning to go out there. Like, what's this all about? Because we're dancing with no music, but it's one of the most talked about experiences that students have. And I think something that really ties into that building those memories so you can have a connection of something that you felt while in that space is what really makes an event unforgettable and kind of separates it from just an average, oh, this is just something we do here and there. Nice. So Kayla, what, what are some of the challenges facing student activities professionals today? Like, What are some of the issues that, that you're keeping an eye on or what do we need to get trained on uh, that we might not have had to pay much attention to a few years back? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if this is something that hasn't been focused on, but I would say work-life balance is definitely a huge one. Um, I mean, I, I, there's not a single person who works in my office that isn't a little bit of a workaholic. Um, it's gotten to the point for some of us where we've had to put like little alarms in our phones to remind ourselves like, okay, time to go, or like to schedule things outside of work to really like ensure that you leave the office. Because one of the things that we experience a lot is you know, we ha we get here in the mornings in order to be productive and to answer emails and do those sorts of things. Um, but the students are all here in the afternoons and early evenings. And so you're tempted to stick around um, just to find your students and to meet with them and see what's going on in their lives. And before you know it, it's six, seven o'clock and you've been here since nine or 10. Um, and so that's def definitely something that I know my office has been kind of working on to improve where we'll like, if, if I'm heading out the door, I'll like walk by my coworkers office and be like, you leaving soon? Um, so that's something that we're implementing. Um, but another thing that I know, like just in general, that student activities professionals are probably dealing with, because I know we're, we're struggling with it, is, um, is our budget. Um, students are asking for bigger and better concerts, bigger and better lectures, more name recognition, more, more of just everything. While our budgets have been consistently cut every year, like not by a substantial amount, but enough that it's noticeable. And so there's that demand that students want those Instagram moments or those once in a lifetime things that they're not going to be able to experience anywhere else while we're getting less and less funding as different issues crop up on campus. Like our health center needed some additional funding this, um, this year. And so some of our piece of the pie got a little bit smaller and it's like, and you can't fault any other area on campus for those types of things. Um, but at the same time, it's like, okay, but all the students are asking for Beyonce. And we can't do that with this amount of money that we're given. So those are probably the two things that our office is dealing with the most right now. 
Has any, anyone checked on how much it costs for Beyonce to come to college? <laughs> I don't even think she'll do colleges. <laughs> Beyond that. Hey, do you want to perform in our rec center? It seats 500 people. No, <laughs> no probably not. So I, I got an email question uh, from a colleague, and, and the essence of the question was, what about commuter students? Or, or late, late night programs, a way to engage them particularly when they're not here on the weekend, right? They're here during the week. Anyone have any thoughts on that? I know for us, we, we're trying to figure that out. Um, we recently inherited a new system that kind of allows us to know if they're on-campus students, off-campus commuters, um, uh, the, the whole demographic scene. Um, so that's something that we're looking into right now. We have a handful of students in our office that either work for our late night program or in other aspects as a building manager or on our programming board who are commuters. So we definitely listen to them. I think it's hard when um, someone, when I, when a few years ago I was commuting an hour each way and I didn't want to stay till one in the morning um, necessarily and make that drive home uh, with the deer and the raccoons. Um, but it, it's something that we are definitely looking at, but it is a struggle because unless you're willing to move your programs earlier, it's hard to keep people on campus. So some things we do, um, as I said before, is we're willing to have some programs switch to an earlier time slot. So our, our football game is a 5 to 10 p.m. time slot. Um, we do a basketball game. We do our homecoming block party um, during homecoming week in a few weeks. That's five to nine o'clock. So we do move a handful of events up. Um, and we've noticed that there are some events when they know their peers are going to be there, that no matter what background they're with, they are there. Um, it happens a lot during homecoming because of team spirit and competing against other teams. Um, but I think that's a, I think that's a great question. And I don't know that we all have that figured that one figured out yet. I know um, for us, when we first started our um, programming series, we did a lot of targeted assessments with um, different demographics of students. So one of those students were commuter students to kind of see what they would want to see um, for them to want to come back to campus at that hour. And a lot of the feedback was um, needing to have the events not go so late. Mm -hmm. um, but one, one year we did partner with um, our Dean of Students office with our commuter students and um, gave out vouchers for the students that attended the late night program that we would comp their parking because there's a parking garage right next to our building um, that's not free. And so um, there was a social for commuter students and you know we were like, come back and join us tonight. And if you come, we'll pay for your parking. And so we gave out some vouchers and out of the people that attended, I think we had about five commuter students that actually came back and turned in their vouchers. And so like Lauren said, that is definitely like a population that um, we're trying to figure out the best way to support. I don't know if late night programming is the best option for them, but there are definitely other alternatives um, that of programmings that we can do that may work better with um, their, their travel and timing um, when they're on campus. I think we lost Kayla. Hopefully she rejoins us shortly. So, so I, I often talk to audiences and explain if we don't intentionally train not just staff, but students how to creatively forage for new ideas, they'll often just keep regurgitating, giving you the same old, same old. So how do we get folks to look beyond what's been done in the past? And I, and I guess my question to each of you is, you know, where do your best ideas come from? What's, what's the process of gathering new ideas? Um, I, I love that question. And I think that is something that um, we probably will all say we're not the best at and there's always room to grow. Um, but something that uh, we've really utilized and it helps to have that social media culture right now too, is what trends are out right now, what challenges are happening um, that help us market or help us bring things to campus. Um, on our campus, the big things are DIYs. Um, so do it yourself, little areas, Pinterest project type of things. Um, we call it kind of elevated. Um, so we're spending the money on the project. Um, 
um, and we get ideas from students, um, things that they're interested in. We also look at local businesses. What are people traveling into Philly or New York for? Um, like I said, we're, we're really centrally located, which is really nice. So listening to some of the students that walk by about what events are they willing to pay money for and travel to go see that we can provide a similar experience on campus. Um, I think a good example for us was several years ago when paint parties were a big thing. We hosted paint parties on campus. Unfortunately, they're not as big as they were and the trend kind of died out um, and we gave it one last stitch effort um, and it was not great. Um, but we tried. So also being willing to listen and let go of things that no longer work. Um, the, the last aspect is, and I always ask my students this, is like things that you want to see are great, but you're you. I'm just Lauren and maybe Lauren would love to go sit in a coffee shop and knit and not talk to anyone and that would be my perfect night and I would be thrilled. But for, for a majority of people, that's not the case. So being able to conceptualize something you would be interested in, but also a larger audience would be interested in. Um, and that's when we, we actually go online and, and start searching and start looking at local events and businesses and seeing what they're doing. I think for us, we rely very heavily on our assessment. We do a lot of robust assessment around our late night programming series, and we get a lot of feedback from students for what they want to see. And so, um, yes, like we are the programmatic experts and we can execute these things, but we don't always have, you know, the, mm -hmm. the knowledge of what the students want to do. And I find myself often like I'll get really excited about something that I think is so great. And then I'll go talk to my student programming board. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what do you all think of this? And they're like, eh, we don't know. And I'm like, all right, you shot me down. And, you know, getting that that feedback from the students, I think, is important because we're we're programming for the students and the students have the best idea and pulse of what is going on in the community and what the students want to see. And these are their peers. So I run everything by my students like I. I literally know that we are in a different time now from when I was on my programming board. And so what I think is cool, they may not think is cool. We use the word hip a lot. I'm like, I'm pretty hip, but um, <laughs> I really rely on that student feedback. I, I look at the suggestions that they give us through assessments and then we make changes based on that. And while we have a really successful program, I really encourage on my staff not to get into the habit of just doing everything the same way just because it's been successful to there's always room for improvement. There's always something great that we can do. And so how can we challenge ourselves to get our programs to be better? Kayla, I know we lost you for a moment. The, the question was, where do, where do you get your best ideas? Like, what's your process to gather new ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I do, I do talk to my students a lot, but I, I work with a lot of thinkers, I want to say. It's probably the best way of putting it, where they can be creative after they've had some time to think about it. So I encourage my students to actually like get online and see what other universities are doing. Um, and I know I took a few of my students to uh, Ball State University last semester to kind of get an idea of like how how do they do late night? You know, do they what what rooms are they utilizing? What which of their activities are you know doing well so that we could come back here and kind of implement them in a way that would work for IU students. Um, and so that's something we do. Um, I also you utilize like. Um, NACA's website quite a bit, like looking at their resources and talking to uh, the vendors that are featured there. Um, I know I've used like some some vendors that I utilize on a regular basis. I've reached out to them to see what's cool or what's fading out based on what actually is being booked or not. Um, like I found out bubble soccer is something that due to liability issues, a lot of vendors are removing. Um, so I was kind of like, oh man, I like bubble soccer. Um, but my students were like, yeah, we don't want to get in, in a sweaty ball and run around. And I was like, that's fair. Um, so utilizing kind of those professional resources as well as listening to students and what they think is cool. Cause we just brought Dan Cakes, like a professional pancake artist. And I was like, I'd never even heard of a professional pancake artist, but they were like, no, 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 this is going to be the coolest thing. People are going to go nuts. And sure enough, we had like so many people in line for it and like holding up like pictures, like pancakes that look like their faces. And I was like, okay, that's, that's awesome actually. So. Wow. Cara, you're writing that down, right? So last question be before we get to a wrap up, what, what is one late night programming trend or issue that you've been playing close attention to? Maybe something you learned at a, at a conference or a regional or through uh, a journal, uh, whether it be I, I don't know, state legislation, cross, uh, 
like I said, YouTube, marketing, administrative issues? Absolutely. Um, something that we're noticing a lot of, besides the pricing of artists, um, comedians, musicians, the whole nine, we're kind of in this weird phase where you can get a thousand or two thousand dollar musician or comedian, um, but then the next jump is a seventy-five, one hundred thousand, um, and even in that range, the names are not as familiar as you would think they should be. So we're seeing a lot of that issue that we're being priced out of the market. Um, the the big thing for us we're also seeing which kind of came to head this past weekend is we had um um uh michael che from saturday night live he does weekend update um a comedian that we thought was relatively um popular um and people recognized who he was did not sell as greatly as we thought so we were starting to look at what live events do we have on campus that are just not going the way we think they should go and a lot of what we're seeing is and i think you briefly mentioned this that influence of youtube is students can access live concerts, comedians, shows, um, stand-up comedy at, at a rate that we can't keep up with. And we're not, they're not looking for that live experience the same way that maybe 10 years ago they were looking for because YouTube wasn't as big of a thing. So trying to figure out what what is that balance? How do we get students to come out to live performances? I can get uh, I can get hundreds of students out to bingo nights and DIYs and novelty nights, but if I put a live musician on stage, that that's a hit or miss and it's usually a miss because people just kind of walk through the student center and sit down and maybe they'll listen but unless it's tied to something larger they don't care i think for us this may be just our university i know that there are some universities that may also be dealing with this is that there's some changes coming with insurance and so mm -hmm. some of the um, artists that we're working with may not meet our insurance requirements particularly the smaller acts that are not represented by a major agency, um, like some of our comedians just don't meet our minimum or some people that we were interested in bringing won't meet our minimum insurance requirement because they just don't have it. And so um, that has been a challenge for us because now it's like we have a vetting process already. And then from that, we now have to, we're losing more potential acts because they, they can't meet this need and the university won't waive it. And so um, it hasn't been fully implemented yet, but we know that it's coming down the pike. And so we're trying to figure out how we can navigate that, how it's going to impact the vendors that we worked with and um, going forward. I've noticed that something with our university is I feel like it used to be easier to get students to come out to our events. Like we would we would put on a poster or on social media like there's free food or we're handing out free T-shirts. And we would have, you know, a couple hundred students come just for those reasons. And we've tried to do things like that. Like we have um, a finals week breakfast that we do every semester. Um, and our last one that we did, um, we didn't, it, like free food wasn't enough to just bring them out of their res halls or like, or out of their houses or apartments. Um, and so we added like an additional thing like a Bob Ross paint along, which was, which ended up kind of being a little bit more successful, but we've realized we've had to really make, turn something into an event. So we had um, like our film series is have is kind of having the same struggle, you know, like they're, the movies are free um, to all students and they could even bring a guest and our numbers have just been slowly plummeting. And so turning those into more of an event, like, like, like it just being it being free is not always enough to bring students out when they're when they can just stay in their residence hall and like watch Netflix on their laptops. Um, so that's something that we're kind of working through right now. Fantastic. All right. So I know we're, we are winding down our last two minutes here in 30 seconds or less. Can each of you share some resources, whether it's a conference, a journal, a book uh, that might help viewers to continue to learn and explore these the, the topics we've talked about today? So I'm going to plug this before Lauren can um, definitely take advantage of um, if you're a member institution for ACY, there's a late night community of practice forum that um, I definitely get a lot of ideas from, can bounce back um, uh, suggestions and questions from different peers that do this work. It's specific for people who have late night programming on their campus, and it's a great resource. Great. Um, oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll just go ahead and plug NACA also. Um, they have like a whole bunch of resources um, for all, like different vendors that people have worked with for 
um, different programs and how how things have gone. Like in like there will be entire synopsises of how um, events have worked out on different campuses, different sites, campuses. Um, so yeah, I'll just plug NACA as well. Wonderful. They took both my organizations. <laughs> uh, both of those, I would also heavily suggest um, uh, student. I, I don't have the book right in front of me. It's right behind me. Um, so I'll, I'll share it with Tony. But uh, there is a phenomenal student employment um, kind of handbook, pretty much. It's one of the few books written on student employee engagement and how you get them to stay involved besides just pushing papers and moving them along. Um, it's several years old, but it is still such a positive resource. It's something I've been using for years and have adapted over time. So heavily suggest that as well as um, Iowa Grow uh, and, and um, High Impact Practices, which kind of all um, come together um, to kind of demonstrate why we exist and what our students do is valuable and will inform not only their college career, but their future professional careers. I love it. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for sharing your time and knowledge uh, today. I, if you send me those books, I will post them up as a link on, on the website. Perfect. And as always, thank you to our program sponsors. I'll be back next month with an episode on eSports on campus. You can receive reminders about this and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to our iTunes podcast. I'm Tony Duty. Thanks for watching, everyone. I hope you make it a great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. <laughs>